0: Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, we've been studying for a while now this book together, and we've kind of hopped around to different places. But let me remind you about the uh, the common themes within this minor prophet, these kind of major themes that we see playing out throughout all of the prophets. Uh, number one, we talked about the sovereignty of God, how he's in control of all things. He's over all things, that he's Lord over all things, that he's never not in control. And so uh, so maybe you know folks like this that, that have this power to trip or this controlling uh, nature and they think that they're always in control and you're like ah you think that you're in control but truth be told you are not well with God it's not that way he is always and has always and will always be in control Uh, the next kind of theme that we've seen that we've talked about and we'll see this also see these two things for sure in Zechariah chapter 9 but is this inevitable judgment of sin that sin must be judged and we've talked about a lot I'm just like you judged me earlier when I Said I wanted to watch Texas Tech play basketball today. You judged me for my sin of not wanting to gather with you. You can gather at my house if you want, uh, but that judgment that you're saying his sin needs to be judged, uh, you're in agreement with, sin will be judged. We just want the righteous judge to be the one that is judging. Um, also, we see a theme playing out throughout uh, this minor prophet, the theme of, his, of God's amazing love. His amazing love that, uh, that, that we are unaware of really in daily life. Like we, we have a, a sense of it. Uh, we understand it a little bit, uh, but we don't understand how, just how amazing it is uh, until we come to grips with, uh, terribleness of sin, uh, how we cannot save ourselves how we cannot be righteous on our own, and we see God doing all those things, which leads us to the fourth truth or the fourth theme, that God is the one that's getting us right. So his love and his righteousness, uh, his love and his getting us righteous or right go hand in hand, and that when we recognize that he's the one that's doing the work, of getting us righteous, then we can say, man, this is an amazing love that the Lord is, is uh, displaying or giving to us. And then the fifth theme is the one that we've been talking, we saw, we started talking about last week and we will continue on through, through Easter talking together about is the truth or the theme of all the minor prophets talk about and even the major prophets talk about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. And so we look backwards. We, we have this whole text here and we can look backwards. Through the lens of the cross, through the lens of Jesus, and we can see that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, that He is the coming Messiah, that He's He has come to this earth, but will also come again. Uh, and and in that we can we can study this with great hope. When Zechariah is preaching this or sharing this prophecy with the people, they still are awaiting that time. When will the Messiah come? We understand that there's a coming of of the Messiah. When will that happen? We know that that's fulfilled in Jesus. So we're looking back. It's why we should have a much greater hope than anyone else in in the history of time because we get to look through the lens of the cross, through the lens of the empty tomb, through the lens of Christ resurrecting from the dead, through the lens of Jesus, look backwards and say, man, Christ fulfilled all those things and so my whole life is different because Christ fulfilled all these prophecies from long long ago and we can put our trust and hope that what he said he will do, he has done and what he says he's going to do, he truly will do those things. So if you're a believer here this morning and you're hearing common things that you've heard throughout your entire life and you're thinking what does this have to do with me now? I already know these things. Remember as a person maturing in Christ we call that being sanctified, that Sanctification is what leads to glorification so if we're going to live and mature in Christ and it's the only way for a believer to be living or a saint to continue living then in our sanctification or being made into the likeness of Christ then glorification happens meaning God will be glorified in our sanctification so if we're just we're, we're just if we're just understanding the knowledge that we have of Jesus and then not applying that or doing anything with it in our life and asking him to mature us. But we're staying infants, will Christ really be glorified in that? Well, the hope is, and I think that obedience to Christ means that we are living a life that we're asking him to change us, to tr- to transform us into his likeness, to mold us into the shape that we that he wants us to be in obedience to him. And then in that uh, Christ is Christ is being glorified. Zechariah seven twelve, you can just write that, that address down and read it later. Zechariah seven twelve, Zechariah talks about the people of God that their hearts become diamond-like. Okay, now stop there. I didn't quote the whole verse because I want you to get a picture in your head right now. Diamond-like. Now most of us think that that that's a positive thing, right? Uh, We think about diamonds. I mean, uh, if you're going to uh, ask someone to marry you, like you don't give them a a ring pop. You don't give them a sucker. You don't give them a hat. Hey, this is a nice hat. I want you to wear this and remember that I'm engaged to you and that one day we're going to get married. Most of the time in our culture, you're going to buy some sort of ring, even if it means like Brian and I did put Cores in the, the game and like oh we finally got the ring that we wanted for our brides uh, even if we do that we're still going to give them some sort of ring that has something on it that looks like a diamond okay maybe it's not really a diamond but but that's kind of the culture like we want this beautiful thing on our finger that says hey I I, I you know I love you and I think I've told you the story before uh, when Mandy and I were, were dating and we we, uh, we we finally said hey we're going to get married and we started talking about like you know the formal things that you have to do and the ring came up man you know just pleading with the lord lord please let her not be materialistic please let her be cheap you know like and that sounds really awful it does right but we plead with the lord and ask ask him so when she picked out a ring i was like oh well that's awesome i can afford that and it won't put me in debt for the rest of my life until we get married and then marriage just you're indebted right always so anyways uh so we buy this beautiful ring and so when when Zechariah 7.12 says their hearts, or they became diamond-like, it's not a beautiful picture. Instead, it continues on, diamond-like hardness. They became hard like a diamond. And you know what a diamond is like, how tough it is, what it can do, uh, how, how, uh, you know, how solid it is, how difficult it is to cut. And, and the hearts of the people belonging to God, their hearts became like a diamond, not in beauty, but in hardness. And I think that we should think about that. One author calls it a, a petrification of souls, that we become petrified in our walk with the Lord. That instead of us, like we talked about last week, worshiping the living stone, we allow our hearts to become stone-like and he has to take a huge chisel or hammer to break it so that we can be shaped and molded by him. So I'm beginning Zechariah chapter 9 by us thinking about this. When our hearts are diamond-like or stone-like, impenetrable, like it's it's very difficult for us to hear the words of the Lord and not, not use our own thoughts or our own mind uh, experiences or our own ideas about what God... Once of us, but also about these prophecies about who, who Jesus or the Messiah is, is going to be, like our ex- expectations of Him, what He'll, how He'll act, the things that He will do for us and for the world. We come in with this almost idol like image of who Christ should be. And the people belonging to God, the Israelites, had the same thing. They had this image in their mind of what the Messiah would look like, how He would act. What their expectations of him were like. I mean, think about last week just for a moment here. What were your expectations of Jesus last week? What did you expect him to do in your life last week? My assumption is this: if you're anything like me, which my prayer often is that you're not, but more than all, more times than I would like in our conversations, I found I find out that we're a lot of lo- alike. But my hope is this, that we would be tr- being transformed into the likeness of Christ, and that our expectations of Christ will be shaped by a biblical model, an understanding, a, a biblical understanding of who Jesus really is. When we take Jesus and try and shape him, we're being anti-biblical. We're being against the Bible. It's not our job to shape who Jesus is, or to form him into our image. Instead, it's the reverse. To be biblical means, To be a follower of Jesus means that he is shaping our lives, that he's forming us into his likeness, transforming us into him, instead of us trying to transform Jesus into us. And so Zechariah in chapter 9 is this picture, the people belonging to God, a hardness of heart, their own understanding of this is who Jesus will look like. Maybe you've done this, and I'm going to use this example again, and I've used it often. But when I grew, when I was growing up, and I began, uh, I was about ninth grade, praying for my future spouse. And coming up with someone taught me to come up with a list of the things that I expected of my future spouse. Like this is what she's going to act like, look like. Here's the family she's going to come from. All these things, and I'm going to shape uh, who I'm going to date by this list. By this list of things. Now, this is a good idea. I promise you. In fact, it's almost biblical. Uh, there's a story about Abraham and Isaac, and and Isaac's wife. Anybody remember her name? Just off the top of your head, starts with an R. Rebecca, yeah, her name is Rebecca. And, uh, there's this shaping of, uh, uh, the servant goes, he's sent out to go find a wife for Isaac. And, uh, and so in that, he's, he's the servant saying, Lord, let the one that you want for my, for my master's son look and act like this. So there's a biblicalness to it. It's just you have to really figure out on your list of things, on your list of expectations and actions, do those fit into, or are they shaped by a biblical, by the Bible, by biblical model of who, uh, who you want to be. So I had these expectations on on, uh, on the list, and I've, I've mentioned this, and I know my mother-in-law is right here right now, so, so I'm not going to say any of the things uh, about in-laws other than this. Uh, one of the things was I wanted a, uh, an orphan, because I didn't want to have to leave my family and join somebody else's family. <laughs> like, can I just marry an orphan, right, so that I, have, that I don't have to leave my family? Because you know how you are. You think your family is the greatest. Or maybe you don't, whatever. But I but I, at the time I thought mine was, and then I learned, right? I'm, I'm kidding about that. But so we have these expectations. Zechariah chapter nine is these expectations, fighting against these expectations of what the Messiah will look like, of where he'll come from, of what he'll be riding in on, of how he'll come victorious in a glorious state, this king overall, riding in on a war horse, uh, thinking, you know, this grandiose picture of who the Messiah is. And I think even though this was written, you know, 500 years before Jesus comes upon the scene, uh, many, you know, 2,500 years ago, whatever the case may be, we still battle with this today. Even though we have a biblical picture of who Jesus is, and I'm not talking about a painting or a portrait. I'm talking about his actions of what he'll do, of what he's done, what he's going to do. We still try and shape Jesus in our vision. This is what we talked about last week uh this lowly insignificant Jesus like we we don't picture him with a a lowly resume like we want Jesus to have this great resume but there's no way we couldn't hire him as savior like there's no way like we look at his resume like for sure he's he's the messiah and yet all these prophecies don't point to things that would go well on a resume lowly insignificant servant a humble stone branch small shoot small sprout we don't look at those things and say this is what the messiah should be so Zechariah chapter 9 goes Great into that, uh, we we hear this gloriousness of a king that's about to come. Our Messiah is going to be this glorious king, yet he's going to be submissive. I mean, just into it, Trump is not our, our king, right? But is he sub, is is submissive any part of his character? I mean, we don't have like a ruler in our world that is known for being submissive. And yet we have this prophecy about our Savior, about our Messiah, that he's going to be glorious yet submissive. But what does this what does this even mean? Like and I've I've joked about this before, like you know, in an argument with an intern one time, you know, that almost came to you know throwing throwing knuckles at one another, uh, you know, talking about things and I, and he brought in Jesus, like, hey, don't bring in my glorious king into this into this battle. Like he will take you out, right? And like is that a good picture? Like that that's what we expect our glorious king to arrive in with his huge sword and on this war horse, which there is a picture of that coming, but we expect him to come this way. And this prophecy that we're about to read gives us this picture of Palm Sunday of this lowly, insignificant servant riding in on a donkey. Kings don't ride in on donkeys, do they? I thought he was going to be glorious, this glorious king who's coming in to conquer. All right, so let's read this together. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 1 says this the oracle of the Lord is against the land of Havrak and Damascus is its resting place. So here we are judgment the Lord is prophesying against he's going to judge this land he's going to bring judgment upon the sin of this people because of the things that they've that they've been doing for the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel so the Lord doesn't just have has his mind or his eyes focused in on his people he's looking at the entire world this plays into our lives today we want all nations to hear about Jesus uh you don't just come from different backgrounds and say that works for you because you were from southeast asia and it works for me because i'm from southeastern new mexico and so we're going to eventually go and meet up together in some heavenly place in paradise under some name that that's given to all god's names now we believe that our god is the judge over all right and so because of that uh we want the whole world to know about the righteous god the righteous judge and his son who can save So for the Lord has an eye on all mankind, on all the tribes of Israel. Verse 2 says this and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart or a fortress or a rock and heaped up silver like dust. So this nation of Tyre and Sidon, uh, Tyre particularly, has begun to trust in themselves. They've built this fortress or this rock around them, this rampart around them. They've heaped up, they've gathered for themselves silver like dust. I mean, we live in southeastern New Mexico. We know how much dust there is. Can you imagine every time you wipe your, uh, you know, whatever it is that you're wiping with it's covered in dust and it was just silver? I mean, you'd be some, some rich folk, right? Your your hearts may grow diamond-like with that silver, okay? Tyree has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, verse 4 says, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she, she shall be devoured by fire okay this is a prophecy this isn't just some uh, unrealistic thing that's going to happen this isn't just God speaking these things and uh, oh man we should be scared These things will happen. In fact, we believe through church history that these things did happen. That in 333 BC, Alexander the Great came in and destroyed these places. That he came in and demolished them. He conquered these places, fulfilling, even though Alexander the Great may not be a person belonging to God, fulfilling these prophecies. God said that they would be destroyed, and sure enough, 150 years later, they were destroyed. Verse 5 goes on to say, Ashkelon shall see it, and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon uh, shall be uninhibited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. Now there were some crazy things that just happened in that in that thing right in that little uh, pocket of or that little section of scripture. Uh, particularly, uh, God is talking about removing iniquity or sin. He's really talking about removing idols. These people were known a group of people known for uh, for having false gods or false idols as they were worshiping. And even in their worshiping, they were drinking blood. They were sacrificing and drinking blood, part of their worship services, which just sounds disgusting. But this is how fake religion or really idolatry begins to work in us. Idolatry leads us to doing crazy, sinful things. In fact, this is one of the ways you can test in your own life. This is a little side note. Test in your own life, do I have idols in my life? Are there things, this is the question you would ask yourself, you ask yourself, are there things in your life that you will sin to do, to remain doing? Are there things in your life that you will sin in order to do? And if the answer is yes, if you can pinpoint or think through things that you're willing to sin to do, it probably is an idol. And you're not being completely obedient, trusting in Jesus. There are are things that you can think about, small things like, can I lie on my taxes? Can I lie at work? Can I not be so faithful to these things? Can I look at these things or or test myself in these limits uh, all for the sake of uh, getting whatever it is, whatever reward or whatever thing it is that I want? Am I willing to sin to get this thing or do this thing? And if you are, you're probably talking about an idol. They're drinking blood. For the sake of what? For worship of these things. They're worshiping this false idol. So we have to think about that in our own life. This judgment that's upon these places. The, the fortress that they're setting up to, to guard themselves with. Is this fortress or this security, the hope that they're putting in this thing, uh, this rock, this wall, whatever that may be, uh, is this truly something that's offering comfort and security? Is it, is it actually giving them hope? Well, we know, reading backwards, no. A wall can be destroyed, Uh, silver can be destroyed, gold can go away. Putting our our trust in our possessions uh, will never bring us the, the contentment or satisfaction that God will bring. Materialism and proud humanism are not able to stand against the true God when it comes to judgment. When God judges us and judges the sin in us, any idol or materialism or humanism or whatever you want to stay will will not be able to stand up against God. And this is the case. This is a perfect picture of this. That God is going to destroy all these things. It is chilling, that one author says, it's chilling to realize the strong parallels between what is said in verses 2 and 3 about the destroying, about these things, in uh, the situation in the West today or where we live today. Like Tyree, we have come to rely upon our skill, especially when it comes to technological pro- uh, powers, our wealth, and our military might. Trust in these things has led us away from trust in God. These worldly idols have taught us to despise him and his law. When we shut our door at home and we feel secure in it, how often do we pray for security from the Lord? We're not trusting in those things. When our bank account swells to the amount that we think is the right amount and we're trusting in those things, no longer are we trusting in our Lord. Instead, we're trusting in our possessions, in ourself, in the things, in the idols of this world. And they will not Stand up against God. And I don't want you to feel guilty or pressured like I'm preaching to you this morning. As I studied this over the past two or three weeks, I feel conviction every time. The things that I'm uh, putting trust in, the idols that I'm leaning upon, instead of like we just saying, leaning upon the everlasting arms of Jesus, trusting in Him and Him alone. Verse 7 goes on to say, uh, it, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. So God is giving a promise. Yes, I'm going to give judgment upon their sin and their iniquities and their idolatry. And I'm going to remove those things. But I can remove those things and bring righteousness upon them so that those who were a part of that can be like my own. They can be brought into my place. And then verse 8 says this, Then I will encamp at my house as guard. Like remember when Tyree built that rampart around herself? Needing guarding and security, God saying, "I'm going to remove all those things that you're putting your trust in, all those idols that you've been worshiping and trusting in and hoping in, and I'm going to place myself outside of you, and I'm going to be the guard around you. I'm going to place, I'm going to camp with you. I'm going to be there among you." I mean, this idolatry that we face, this trusting in things instead of instead of God, uh, it, it really becomes. An issue when it's, uh, when we realize how it distances us or divides us against God. The outcome of idolatry is always that it ends in dissatisfaction. So so perhaps maybe this morning you like uh, you believe that there is a god and he's full of might and he can rule over the earth but he's too far away and unimaginable to to comfort to actually bring com- comfort to you and so you seek comfort in other things maybe it's foods or drinks or things of this world or even people of this world instead of trusting in comfort that can be brought from god or security that can be brought from god you can't trust him to order life as you desire and and you began to shape him into your image. You want a different God, a tamer God, a more docile God, one that you can control. Instead of God being sovereign over all things, you would like to be sovereign over God. These these places, Tyre, Sidon, Hamath, Hadrach, all these places have, have become places full of people that were trying to be their own gods trying to control their own life, transforming God or God's little gods into their image so that they can control them instead of the God controlling them. You want a God you can steal, one you can hide, one you can you can keep in your purse or wallet and use only when you want. We have to come to an understanding that God will overthrow all idolatry and he will establish true worship upon this earth. And this prophecy is leading towards that. And the 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 most magnificent, glorious thing of it all is that the church is the place that can give an example of this: that we, as the people gathering, the people of God gathering together, should not have idolatry in our midst at all. That people should see us gathering on Sundays, but also sent out during the week as people who only worship Jesus, only worship God, having an understanding that that anything else is lower than God and does not deserve worship. And even though today we don't bow down to stones or or statues or drink blood or, or make bowls of food to set before our gods, we worship idols in other ways. Our lives, our human nature is a perpetual factory of idol making. And so we have to fight against this. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhibited salt land. Think how thirsty and desperate that little shrub is. Never finding satisfaction in anything else. And that's why we get to verse 9, in chapter chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud. Because even though these people are desperate and they've been worshiping false things, Listen to what God has promised. Throw away all idols. Find no trust in yourself or things of this world. Instead, trust in the Lord and the Lord alone. Because listen to this, the second part of verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Let's stop here for a moment. How often does this happen? How often does a king leave his throne and go to his people? We see this in Jesus, prophecy fulfilled, that our king has left his high lofty place, his high lofty position, and come down to us to rescue us. Behold, your king is coming to you. And even in a sense of everyday life, when we wrestle against idol-making in our lives, when we wrestle against not trusting in the Lord, when we wrestle against not being obedient to Christ and Christ alone, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. When He comes to us, not only is He uh, coming to us and showing this act of grace and walking to us or or coming to our aid, but He's also bringing with Him righteousness and salvation. He owns those things. They are in His possession. He's not coming to this earth searching for them. Let's search together and maybe we'll find righteousness together. Or maybe we'll find salvation together. Instead, He brings them with Him. Righteousness and having salvation is He. And then it switches. Remember I said we we like to shape jesus into our likeness instead of jesus shaping us into his likeness behold your king is coming what a glorious thought the king is coming well what is he going to how is he going to get here what's he going to be riding in a black limo surrounded by armed forces this huge jumbo jet with a with a seal on the side what is our king coming up? how is he going to get here humble And mounted on a donkey. Remember what I said earlier? How many kings or uh, positions of authority do we know? People of authority that come in with humility? That come in riding on a donkey? Hardly any. Only one, really, that we know for sure. This King Jesus, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In a few weeks we'll celebrate this on, on Palm Sunday. We'll celebrate Matthew 21. Where we looked at where we see this prophecy being fulfilled, where Jesus is riding into town and people are recognizing this is our King. And we're going to sing Hosanna to him. We're going to sing glory, you know, glory to his name. Because look at him riding in on this on this donkey, fulfilling prophecy. Fulfilling prophecy that was prophesied so so many years ago. The Jews, like us, didn't picture this. They weren't, they weren't waiting for some lowly servant, insignificant, terrible resume guy to come in riding on a donkey. They wanted a war horse. They wanted somebody coming in with a sword to, to take over. They had this political mind saying, we want a king who's political. We want a king who's going to rule over all the earth. That's going to make us right. That we can form and, and shape into our minds. That we can tell what to do. We don't want this lowly, insignificant, somewhat glorious Servant coming in with humility mounted on a donkey. It doesn't make any sense. Why would he ride in on, why would he ride in on a donkey? Verse 10 says this, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem on a donkey. You're going to cut off the war horse humbled on a donkey and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. What a picture here of, again, of, of what Christ has done, of the message that He's given us as His disciples to go to the nations with His, with His message, to go to the nations with His good news, and He shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea all across this world. How is He going to do that? By sending out His sent people to go and speak peace to the rest of the world. Truly, the donkey stands out, right? I mean, it's a deliberate rejection of the symbol of arrogance, really, of trust in human might. Lowly, humble, donkey, and and deliberate rejection of what's going on in the rest of the world. Thomas, I'm not going to pronounce, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, but Mick Comiskey, he says this, this arrogant trust in human might this deliberate rejection, this symbol of, uh, of the donkey stands out. It's expressing this submission to our sovereign God. I mean, Jerusalem's king is of humble status, yet victorious. And so it has always been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of of its king and savior, Jesus. We don't go with sword. We don't go with arrogance or, or this proudness. I'm going to run in here with this, with my guns blazing and on this war horse, but instead I'm going to act and be transformed into the likeness of my, of my savior, Jesus, my king, and be like, and be like him. Listen to this. Genesis 49, 10 through 11 says this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's his promise that the rule will always remain in Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So this king from this line of of Judah is going to continue to rule over. And then Genesis 49.11 says this, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt, To the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Another picture of Jesus, this humbled, lowly, insignificant, yet glorious King Jesus in submission to the obedience and to the prophecy of God, ruling as he desires. So the entrance of the messianic king is one who is righteous with salvation, who comes not in worldly might, but in weakness almost, in the folly or the folly of the cross, thinking through, uh, looking at it backwards. Earthly kings rule for their own riches and glory, but Christ comes and rules for our salvation. Earthly kings rule over people from above in haughty power, but this king condescends, lowers himself to dwell among his people glorious and victorious Benjamin Warfield says this Jesus Christ is the prince of peace because he takes away sin and you and I are workers for peace when we preach his gospel which is the gospel of peace just because it is the gospel of deliverance from sin sin means war and where sin is there will be war in your soul as a saved believer, but also in those who are lost. There's war happening. There's war in this church right now that Satan would fight against us. We don't want, Christ, we don't want Satan to have the glory. We want Christ to have the glory. And so Satan is against us. He's at war against us. Righteousness means peace. And there can never be peace where righteousness has not first been realized. And so we have to recognize our King Jesus coming victorious, those in submission to God, humbled, mounted on a donkey, coming to rescue us, to bring salvation and righteousness to us. Uh, Verse 11 says this, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Think about that Jeremiah chapter 17 that we just read about. This lowly shrub placed in the desert because they had been trusting in themselves. In this parched, dry, salty desert. In desperation, need of rescuing. Think about a waterless pit. Think about being at the bottom of this pit suffering, having no hope. And yet this king comes to you mounted Glorious king mounted as a servant, humbled on a donkey, bringing with him righteousness, bringing with him salvation to rescue from the waterless pit. What a great picture. What a glorious picture. And so how is it then? How is it that that a king who comes not on a war horse, but on a donkey, not in power... And pride, but in weakness and affliction, can produce the kind of triumphs spoken of here in Zechariah chapter nine. How can we have the hope that we have? Verse twelve says, "This return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare, declare that I will restore you, uh, restore to you double. For I've bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its heir. I will stir up your sons, O Zion." Against your sons of Greece and, and yield, I wield your, you like a warrior's sword. And then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The God, the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the slingstones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For for like the jewels of a crown they shall uh, shine on this land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. So how is this? I mean, this picture of this glorious king coming over us victoriously, How could this happen with some lowly, insignificant, submissive king riding on a donkey? Only when we begin to understand that the enemy is ultimately portrayed here as the enemy of sin, of idolatry, of iniquities, of rebellion, of rejection from the Lord, of division from the Lord. So only when we understand the enemy is ultimately portrayed here as the enemy of sin and with its power and penalty only guilt, then we will understand that Jesus is glorious over all of that and that He's victorious over sin and death conquering it all and that the whole of our salvation relies and is in the fruit of the work of Jesus Christ, the King who rode in so humbly into God's city so long ago, yet bringing with Him righteousness and salvation. And so we also, understanding that our glorious King, in submission to God the Father and His sovereignty, came bringing with Him righteousness and salvation and making peace between us and God. And so therefore, if you're a believer here this morning, your role, your task is to be a messenger sent by Him a minister of reconciliation, sharing the gospel with the world, with all nations, telling them there can be peace between you and God. If you're struggling with idolatry, like I struggle with often, making things, uh, elevating things to a place of of holiness and righteousness, and a a place where they should be worshipped, we have to ask God, God, will you break us? Let our hearts not be diamond-like. Let our hearts not be like stone, but, but break us of that. Lord, let me not shape you into my image, but instead shape me into your image. And if you're here this morning and you have not settled, if you have not received peace from God between you and Him, what better time than now to say, God, let me be in confession of Christ as Lord so that I might have peace between you and I, so that I might glorify you instead of of myself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a time that we can gather together, focus our mind, our soul, our our heart upon you and you alone. God, continue to convict me of idols in my own life. Lord, continue to shape me into your image. No longer trusting in myself, but completely trusting in you. God, for the rest of the folks in the room this morning, I pray that you would continue to work in their lives as well, bringing conviction if needed, bringing counsel, bringing encouragement. God, all for your glory. That we know that you, this lowly, low, in our eyes, sometimes lowly, insignificant Savior, humbled, riding in on a donkey, we try and shape you into to our picture or our expectations, God, convict us of that. Let us have a, a biblical mindset of who you are. Trusting in your word. Trusting in your wisdom. Let us see Christ coming to our aid. Rescuing us out of the waterless pit. Out of this place of desperation. And bringing us into you. Adopting us into your family. For your glory. Not so that we may glorify ourselves. But instead that we might exalt and glorify you. Let us respond to you in a way this morning, God, that brings you all honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's respond.